Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, Biblical World listeners. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I want to welcome you to another installment of the podcast. This time we have Chris and Kyle speaking with Bob Cargill about the study of ancient Israel. Just as a reminder, if you'd like to give us a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast, we'd really appreciate that because as we grow and develop, we're only, you know, we're not even a year old yet. As we grow and develop, uh, we want to help other people find out about what we're doing here. So we hope you enjoy the content that we're providing and we'd love it if you could share it with people, uh, even if it's your next door neighbor, whoever. Uh, if you could just pass a word along, we'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to all of you who support us monthly through donations. If you would like to help us in that capacity too, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. And enjoy the episode. Welcome, Onscript Biblical World listeners. It is a new podcast, a new day. I'm Kyle Keimer. I'm joined today with my host, Chris McKinney, and we are going to be speaking to Professor Robert Cargill. And we're going to cover a number of different topics, actually. Bob is a bit of a, a polymath and can do a whole lot of things. And so we're going to talk about digital humanities. We're going to talk about the role of archaeology in the public. We're going to talk about Jerusalem and you know whatever else kind of comes to, to mind as we're going. And so to kick things off, I just want to introduce uh, Bob. And for those of you, many of you probably, are, our listeners out there probably know the name and are familiar with him, particularly from his role as a former editor at Biblical Archaeology Review. But in addition to doing that, he's also Associate Professor of Classics and Religious Studies at University of Iowa. Uh, his focus is on Judaism, Christianity, Second Temple literature, delves into everything from Hebrew Bible to Dead Sea Scrolls, Pseudepigrapha, Aramaic, Targums. Uh, in particular, he has a new book on Melchizedek traditions, and he has another book on Melchizedek traditions that's going to come out soon, so we'll probably delve into that as well. Now, and before he did some of these things, he also uh, finished his PhD by building a 3D model of the city of Qumran. And so this is really uh, one of the things that we want to, to kind of delve into today is the role of some of this technology and how we reconstruct the ancient world and how we make it accessible for people out there who want to, to know about uh, archaeology, history, what some of these places look like, and even um, how we interpret them. And in addition to some of these things, we're also going to, to jump in. I feel like I just keep going in addition, in addition, but you know, Bob has, has done a lot. He's doing a lot. He also does a lot with TV. And so he's been on a number of shows over the years from uh, Good Morning America. He, he does some things with CNN. He has a new series that that just started airing on Jerusalem, and we'll, we'll also talk about that. So it's a it's a busy day today. So I think uh, with without further ado, I just want to give Bob a chance to say hello, and then we'll we'll jump into our our discussion. Uh, Kyle, Chris, uh, good to be here, and thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Yeah. Now a, a little disclaimer: I have known Bob for quite a while, and so I'm going to try not to say anything too embarrassing about. 
about anything that we may have done. But um, I will say that at one point in time, we had the distinct uh, pleasure of traveling around the Holy Land together um, and everything from careening down the Ma'ale Akra beam to pushing a car up a hill in Bethlehem to, you know, you name it. it uh, we, we explored and had a good time. And so uh, he's a, a great guy. And so this is a lot of fun to be able to interview you today, Bob. Uh, so my first question for you to kind of kick things off is uh, this whole um, idea of digital humanities. So you, you know, it's kind of in the name of part of your, your title. You work in digital humanities. What exactly is that? If you could kind of parcel it out for some of our listeners, because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, it's a really kind of a hot term these days in the academic world. But what, what does that mean for you? And why is it or what, what should people out there take away from it? Sure. Uh, digital humanities, you know, it's 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 basically a contested term. Um, I've always broken it down into two different categories, and that is the research that you could normally do on your own. This is the typical research that you could do with a concordance or that you could do, you know, that, that you could traditionally do without the help of computers and technology. Um, but that adding technology to this research makes it go faster, makes it better, you know, so so a computer-assisted research, technology-assisted research, digital humanities can be seen as that way. It's stuff that you could have done, but with the addition of technology, uh, and, and it, it makes it more of a digital approach to the humanities, and now you can do things better, faster, uh, and we see that with the addition of, you know, digital Bibles and digital concordances and and um, lots of things that people used to do. And it took them, you know, a decade. And now we can crank out, you know, in, in an hour because of the use of this technology. So that's one side. The other side of digital humanities is the research that you just couldn't do without technology. And so there's a lot of research uh, going on, the kind of, you know, a reconstructing an archaeological site in virtual reality, right? Re, you know, it's very expensive to get a license to go to a, to go to an archaeological site, to clear everybody out, to not only excavate it, but then to begin to reconstruct it, to get the permits. You know, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort. And then to say, I think it looked like this. And somebody says, no, I disagree. And you take it all down and you rebuild that's impossible. You're right. You couldn't do that. It, it would, it's cost prohibitive. It just takes too much time, too much effort. But if you could do that in a, in a virtual reality environment and you could say, well, one scholar thinks it looks like this and another scholar thinks it looks like this. And you could test these different interpretations, these different reconstructions and test them against one another and then offer either all of the different interpretations or one that you think best fits all of the evidence, best fits all the interpretation. That is a, the kind of research that you just couldn't do uh, without uh, technology. The, the other is the kind of research we're seeing now where you're looking into wrapped up scrolls without unrolling them. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues here at the University of Iowa, Paul Dilley, and uh, some of his colleagues, some of his partners, are actually able to go through manuscripts, codices, uh, uh, scrolls that are still closed, right? They haven't been opened. And yet 
using very, very finely tuned pieces of technology, they can do like an MRI scan, cross sections of this thing, and then they create a computer program that puts them back together and they can actually see the text appear and then they can basically virtually unroll it and they can read a text without unrolling it. And that's the kind of uh, stuff that's very, very exciting. Uh, they're doing this, the IA is doing this with a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls that they're not able to, to open. So that's essentially digital humanities. It's the stuff that you used to be able to do that's sped up by technology. And then there's the things that you couldn't do without technology. Can I, can I jump in here for just a second? Yeah, I was just going to say um, one, that, that, that's, that's great. And one real advantage I, I, I see to what you're, what you're discussing that even in, in archaeology, is how the the role of photogrammetry and the creation of three-dimensional models has been implemented at many sites, including such as the IAA, the Israel Antiquities Authority, that you mentioned at a number of sites, especially at Herodian, um, that I think are really pushing this forward, not only in terms of preserving the data as they're excavating it, but potentially um, as um, the technology even continues to get better, uh, incorporating that into all kinds of, of reconstructions, like you were mentioning. Uh, like you were mentioning, uh, one question I did have, though, and something that I've even in um, relatively short time, in the last let's say decade or so, um, that there have been great digital humanities projects built on JavaScript or built on other things, and they those go the way of the dodo, and you're kind of left with this wonderful resource that maybe you can find in the Wayback Machine if you find it on Wikipedia or something. Um, but it's, it's difficult to, um, to, to go back to and you lose all this. And so do you have any thoughts about the preservation or even conservation of, of these great digital humanities projects um, that um, trying, to, trying to maintain them over time? I, I, I'm sure that's something that's probably come up. It, it, it does come up and it has come up uh, specifically with my project, right? I, I created my project in an incredibly powerful piece of software uh, called Presages Creator. It's a, it's a proprietary software. You have to pay money for it. Um, and the problem with that is, is that not everybody can pay money and then the learning curve to learn how to use this software. The problem is one, buying the software, two, learning how to use it, and then three, once you build out this model, one of the reasons I chose this software is you can fly through it in real time. That is, once you create the model, you can actually, you know, I want to go left. It's a real-time navigation. Whereas if you create it in some of the other rendering softwares, it's not a real-time navigation. You have to, you have to tell, you have to fly a camera through it basically, and then you produce a movie. The problem, of course, is now. As these softwares update, you've got to continue to pay them. And then as new open source solutions come out, people want to shift to that, and they're not always cross-compatible. If you remember way back, a lot of your listeners might not remember this, but um, older listeners might, when Mac and PC used to run on two different uh, on two different platforms, sometimes the Mac stuff wouldn't play on the PC and the PC stuff wouldn't play on the Mac. That's what we're dealing with. And so a lot of these projects a lot had a lot of time invested in simply don't work anymore because universities or organizations just say, you know what, we're going to retire this. We're not going to continue to fund this. And so the answer is um, you either need money to bring these projects over into an open source platform, a platform that, that everybody's using, 
uh, or you just need to build them in these. I mean, that's going to be the solution in, in, in an open source platform. Everybody needs to get together and decide, A, that virtual reconstruction, uh, uh, visual da- databases are a good thing. And this is what we want, not just to create recreate what we think the site looks like, but you can actually use these uh, virtual databases to store uh, information. You know, we found this here, we found this here. The databases are incredibly powerful. And then you can render back various reconstructions. But it needs to be, we need to get together as the archaeological community and agree on this is what we're going to use. This is how we're going to, this is the naming, you know, just like they did with the web for all those years, right? It took them a while. But this is the naming structure we're going to use. And let's get all of the archaeologists on one uh uh, one naming structure, one piece of software, and then you know it's it's unlimited what we can do because then it, everything shifts to big data. It's just getting all of these various sites that have been reconstructed into one master model, and then you can just basically build out the entire Holy Land. Yeah, that's great, Bob. That's really interesting, and it really gets to the heart too. I think of a, a bigger issue that kind of underlies, you know, even that aspect of the whole archaeological process. And it is this, you know, we need to, as as scholars, as archaeologists, think through and have a good methodology for how we're capturing data in the field, all the way up to how we're preserving it and then reconstructing it. And this is something, you know, it's, it's always the kind of perennial problem in, in excavations that as new technology, even just to record the material you're doing is, is developing, you know, you know, some sites have you know recorded it in old um, you know punch cards or on paper or named this that or the other thing, and over time those change, and so even your ability to go back and reconstruct what was excavated and what was recorded becomes a challenge, and so there's a real thought process that needs to go into every step of the of of the way, and particularly this this latter step, which I think is so fascinating, and I think is what really drives. Um, such such interest is the ability now with digital humanities, with doing 3D reconstructions, virtual reconstructions, with you know things that people can really grasp and hold and, and see what it is that the ancient world looked like, or what you know kind of experience that in a way that you know unless you have a really vivid imagination can be a challenging, particularly when you're in the field and all you're finding are stumps of walls and foundations and you know the the negative imprints of pits, and so you know there is this methodological Logical um, challenge for putting everything together, and so I think that you know you have a, a really good point that you know there needs to be more interacting with this. And to put some so put some like concrete examples here, like just think about something like in, in recent years with ISIS destroying whole cities, and they're gone. Like we can't go back to. Uh, to put these things together and having a digital model, whether it's a three-dimensional model or a reconstruction, is is something that's 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 not only a great teaching tool, but it's something that's what really the goal is is preserving it. And um, so anyway, go ahead, Bob. Didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was I was going to say not only is ISIS the prime example, but think about salvage excavations. Right, if you've only got two months to go in there, they're going to stop a highway project or a mall project. You've got two months to go in there. Not only are you in there excavating at a very rapid pace with the full knowledge that the site is going to be dismantled and destroyed, but if you had a virtual modeler, right, that was in there as the site was being drawn at the end of every day, the top plans, as you were cataloging the stuff, if somebody was in there doing the photogrammetry, if people were in there uh, modeling this stuff as it went along, when you were done, 
not only would you have some photographs and not only would you have some drawings, but you could, in theory, then take that data and posit various different reconstructions. And you could, in theory, rebuild the site. So then when the, when the strip mall goes up or the highway goes in, you could at least say that we have this reconstruction based upon the actual data that was there. So you can, you know, the, the IAA and, you know, the, the partnerships that they have with the road companies, and they've got a pretty good little incentive program now, where if you find something, they're going to come in and make sure that they don't just hide it or take it to the black market. They really are encouraging people to, if you come across something, come tell us about it. And part of that team that goes in should be virtual modelers um, that, that can that can take this data on a, in a very quick way into the virtual reality world. No, that's. I think that's a a great point, and I think too. You know, in in this day of internationalism, there's no real reason that we can't be doing this. I mean, the technology's there; it's becoming more cost effective, and particularly, you know, under COVID, you know, restrictions and traveling, it 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 opens up the potential for research for many scholars who can't get to Israel or to wherever it is that you're going. And so as we record these things, not only does it leave a permanent record that we can manipulate, but yeah, it's, as you were mentioning with the whole kind of defining digital humanities, we can start asking new types of questions as well. We can do things that we just couldn't do before. We can offer this, that, or the other reconstruction, and we can do it from, you know, California or, you know, Siberia or wherever you are. And it, it really, I think is going to help the broader community to move forward, to think about things in a different way that hasn't traditionally been possible due to just limitations of processing such amounts of data. That's right. And methodologically, one of the things I, I wrote about at the end of my dissertation was it's not enough just to offer the, the final reconstruction, which may, may very well be my subjective interpretation. My, You also need to preserve, you need to have software that preserves what was actually discovered. So I, I went through various ways of rendering in 3D that which was actually there and that which is reconstruction, kind of like the black line that you see in a wall of an actual, you know, when you go visit a site, everything above the black line has been put back up, but they have a pretty good certainty that this, you know, there was a wall there. I, I talk about different ways in which you can you can look at a skeleton, you can look at the the wireframe, you know, you can you can make it pale green if you want. We know for certain that the wall wasn't pale green, right? But you there's well, different ways. Do we that you can, yeah, it, it's always possible. <laughs> but no, it's it's but to preserve all of the data, not just the finished product, and that's important. Uh, and in one other word is there's always competition between different digs. They're competing for funds. They're competing for volunteers. But this is one thing we can, we should all agree to collaborate on, and that is finding a common uh, platform on which we can all model uh, and a, a naming convention that we can all use to preserve this information. And then, you know, we can go raise funds and, and look for volunteers, things like that. I think it's a really good point. Um, I mean, just two examples that immediately pop to mind based upon salvage excavations um, in Israel. I mean, you have the Beit Shemesh East project that totally revolutionized our understanding of, of Beit Shemesh. It was always thought that it didn't have seventh century and it turns out they just weren't digging on the right side of the road. But so much of that's going to be gone because Highway 38 has to run through there and you need uh, people in this large growing city to be able to get from point A to point B. And, and another one is Horvat Tevet, which is 
uh, just below uh, the Hill of Moray in the Jezreel Valley. Great site, you know, 10th century, 11th century, 9th century, uh, excavated by Omer Sergei. Um, that is really a question of this, uh, you know, the, the dating of maximalism versus minimalism, but it's going to be covered up. I mean, it's going to be, the highway is going to go right through that. It's the main highway from Tiberias to, uh, to Haifa and also connecting with uh, back towards the main highway and towards Tel Aviv. And um, to be able to now have access to these reconstructions, as you're saying, is something that's a real possibility. Um, and it's really exciting. I mean, and to me, I always think about, I kind of chuckle at this because it's a bit of an irony as the archaeologists themselves are often reticent to implement this when actually what we're studying is technology. You know, the development of technology, we need to be adaptable and flexible ourselves to implement all these new technologies um, as they come along, as long as they're practical. And I, here, I think it's very practical. That's right. I mean, this technology. Now, the irony is, of course, when I was doing this in 2007, this was cutting edge stuff. Now I look back at it and I'm like, I, how are you doing this now? I'm, I feel like the old guy kind of because I'm getting older. Uh, but my kids are, you know, it's the old stereotype of my kids know how to do things technologically now that I don't. The, the stuff that they're doing now and, you know, and, and shout out to not only Omer, uh, but also to Boaz Gross, who's digging yep. there at, at Beit Shemesh East. Uh, who I think Kyle and I had the had the pleasure of digging with at Tel Azikah yep. uh, back in the day. So they're doing great work there. But could you imagine if they had the um, virtual uh, database folks that can sit there and just take that stuff and put it into the database? Mm -hmm. It's not as expensive. It's not as cost prohibitive as you think. And I think that should just be a standard. So you have you have somebody who's an expert in ceramics. You have somebody who's an expert, you know, in bones, and you've got a, a digital modeler there on on staff. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and kind of drawing off this is you, you, what Chris was saying. Also, what, what, what both of you were kind of were saying. You know, it's always this this dialectic, I guess, of you know, we we study the ancient world. We we love finding you know what was there, but we remember, or we have to remember at least that yeah, there is a living society you know in in Israel as well. And so there's always the you know to a certain degree this tension between you know wanting to find and preserve the past, but recognizing that we need to accommodate the present as well. And you know the technology is giving us this this potentiality. But one thing I thought of as you guys were were talking there is that you know think about a tell site. And Bob, maybe this is a question for you or or even Chris, if you want to pipe in, you know, what is the potentiality with some of this, this technology that we have for kind of parceling apart multi-level tells and reconstructing um, in a way that, again, just hasn't been possible that, you know, through the, the modeling capabilities that we have, you know, I think people think, uh, or, you know, oftentimes of this modeling and say, oh, it's a one period site like, you know, Qumran. Okay, you've got this beautiful digital model of Qumran that's, you know, a kind of a synchronic view, like this one period site. But what what potential do we have with this technology to say, okay, how does it change over time in very nuanced ways? And can it help us to actually do stratigraphy, stratigraphic analysis? I don't know. You're just, there's just something I thought of. If, if we're spitballing, I mean, you know that it's coming. There's going to be a technology someday. I don't know how much into the future, but there's going to be a way to, you know, step back a few meters and to shoot something, uh, uh, some kind of scanner at the side of a tell and just get everything. 
someday, someday they're going to have the technology. It's going to be sensitive enough to just scan down the side or, you know, scan, you know, kind of like we do with ground penetrating radar at a close range. They're going to be able to do that at a high sensitivity from a distance and basically get, you know, here's where all the walls are. Look at this stratigraphy. You see this goes down. Let's, you know, the idea has always been, can you excavate a site without actually digging? I think that's coming, but you're still going to have to dig. But if you can, if you can look at it, especially in a cross section before you're actually digging, then if you get in there and dig and you start messing up and things start falling down and as is, as is want to, to take place, um, you can, you know, you can actually have that reference at the beginning. Well, this was here, this was here. I think that day's coming. I mean, I, I don't think it's that far off. That technology is coming. First one to discover it is going to make some money, right? But um, why that, we're that's, here. that's coming. That's right. Well, I, I, I can say, at least as far as the way we excavate at Tel Borna, is every day we're taking a photogrammetric, uh, photogrammetric um, uh, model of every area. So we have a record that can then be linked back to different reconstructions of the site. And we actually do all of our recording on that. So, um, and creating those models means that you're going to be able to not only have the preservation of very accurate data, but then it can be plugged into all of these different po uh, possible solutions uh, down the line. And so, um, Matt Adams of, of the Albright Institute uh, has, I think, kind of pioneered this as well in his Jezreel Valley Regional Project at, at different sites. I do think that there is. Um, it, 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 it's an easier transition to a one-period site, no question. Uh, but there is a lot that can be attached to multi-period, multi-period sites. Well, we're going to switch topics here now. We this is a, uh, you know we could keep talking about some of the digital humanities stuff. It's so interesting and and important. But we do want to move on to our next thing, and that is you know thinking about the way that you know we as scholars present our research and make the ancient world accessible to the larger public. And Bob, you know, you, you, I think, uh, more so than uh, most scholars are really good at bridging this gap between the academic world and the kind of public world, uh, whether it was as the, the editor of, of bar and bringing, you know, good, good quality research in a, in a more accessible way that, you know, you don't have to necessarily be some specialist who knows how to parse, you know, the G infinitive stem in, you know, Akkadian or something like that. And, you know, I guess my question for you is, you know, why is it so important that, that we as scholars bring and make our, make our research accessible to the public? And, and then we'll talk a little bit about one of your books where you, you kind of took this specific approach as well. Sure. Well, it, it was basically twofold. Um, and I think this goes for, for anyone um, in when they decide to take on a career or choose a path or choose a niche within a career. And one is, uh, it was my natural skill set. So just naturally, the, the things that I was good at was uh, standing up in front of a, a group of students and explaining difficult concepts. So I have never been one to attempt to sound pretentious or to sound more sophisticated than I am, right? I'm a, I'm a kid from Central California, right? From Madera, Fresno. That's one of those towns that uh, people kind of tease about traditionally, right? It's not San Francisco, it's not Los Angeles. And, and yet I'm very proud to be from the Central Valley 
and to, you know, to work very hard. We're not even blue collar, right? We're no collar, but we're <laughs> t-shirts, right? We work on farms. And so I always, uh, I was raised, it was very much, uh, you know, I was a baseball player and I was, uh, you know, I'm sweating all the time and working in the yard, this kind of thing. So that was very much a natural thing for me is as I moved on in academia, as I made the transition from college athlete to uh, scholar, it was, it was not, I'm trying to be as sophisticated as I can be. It was the opposite. It was, I want to take these difficult concepts and I want to bring them to the, the, the place that I used to be. I, that's the people that I want to reach. It's, I don't want to look smart to other smart people. I want to try to help the people that are, were where I came from. It's always been public outreach for me. That's always been important. I think too often scholars focus too much. And it's and part of it is just the way the system is set up. You got to get tenure. You got to publish in peer-reviewed journals. You, 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 you got to reach all the... And it's not geared towards actually educating the public. And so part of it was my natural skill set. Uh, you know, I like to I speak well in public. I tell jokes. I study comedy, right? I try to bring in all these things that allow me to communicate well. But the other is that I, I really value and found a niche with communicating, do, basically doing public scholarship. And that has worked out quite well for me. And, you know, I, I also took advantages of opportunities that were put in front of me. So, you know, I, I, I always joke about how I just kind of stumbled uh, into these television opportunities uh, when they came to me and somebody saw that and said, Hey, why don't you come do this with us? And I just kept doing them. And one thing led to another. And, you know, I, I kind of did it backwards, but I've been doing public scholarship for a long time now, not as a senior scholar who got tenure and then went into public scholarship, but kind of the other way around. They were looking for someone young who had a younger voice now with the gray beard and stuff, not so young, but, but someone who was dynamic and someone who, you know, was really excited and still showed that passion and wasn't afraid to talk about, you know, the things that most scholars just say, oh, we don't, we don't entertain those questions because we don't talk about aliens and we don't talk about the Ark of the Covenant. We don't talk, I would go there. And for, you know, for me, that was important because those were the questions that I was asking you know, as a, as a young kid. And, you know, if I can reach one or two kids, if I can young people and get them a excited about history, but B, you know, tell them it's okay to be asking these questions. You're not dumb. Don't, don't walk away from the field because you're not already advanced. Hang in there. It's okay. If they have a place to go where they can learn these, what we would consider to be basic questions, then I'm doing my job then that person's going to come along and, and we're going to bring them along. And that's what we need. The, the, other, the other reason I do public scholarship is it just makes our job easier. Because if we don't reach out directly to the public, then all these charlatans and pseudo scholars and just people who are just trying to make a quick buck because they can, they're going to go out and say ridiculous things to the public. And then we've got to go out and combat that. And then we've got to put together committees. I remember doing this back in 2007, right? We've got to put together committees. How are we going to combat pseudo scholarship? How are we going to combat these, these fake archaeologists who are trying to, to do, say all these ridiculous things? Well, why don't we get out ahead of that and do the public scholarship ourselves, reach out to the public directly? And so I was a part of that early on, and I've just been doing it ever since. For me, it's fun. I love 
teaching people, young and old, about archaeology and the Bible. I, I would just say that that's a great um, kind of a great segue into what the purpose of this podcast is. Uh, really, is is this public scholarship where we're speaking off the cuff about new discoveries, new books, but we're trying to understand it um, our, ourselves and also. Uh, those in our audience who are, are are really interested in these topics that aren't specialists. And the fact is, we're not all specialists in all these fields that we're interested in. And uh, related to that, I would say that both in, in doing this podcast and also um, just ha- trying to see how education is moving in general, uh, many times the the scholars also really like just the basic teaching that's dynamic. Where I mean, uh, that, that it's not just only for the public. It's actually good for everyone to have something that is dynamic and uh, interesting and, and, and straightforward rather than the kind of stuffy um, you know, patch on your, uh, on your elbow uh, experience that we're, we, we all like to some extent, but it's this, it's, it, everyone benefits from it. So, um, so you're, you're very much commended in that regard. Yeah, well, yeah, I think I, we're all very um, like-minded here with, with that approach. Sorry, you go ahead. No, no I was going to say, I appreciate that. It's, the truth is that scholars, really technical scholars, people who, you know, at R1 universities who are doing original research, they can't possibly be specialists in everything. So they need kind of rough summaries, which is why we have book reviews, right? Which is why we have uh, public lectures, why we have uh, little conferences, mini conferences and colloquia, right? We do this for a reason. Now, they might speak at a at a little higher technical level, but those things exist for scholars because they can't possibly be the best at everything. And so basically it's that concept that you're pushing out to everyone else. And when I was uh, editor of BAR, uh, one, of the, one of the things we all knew because we could see the subscription database was that um, a lot of these scholars who would, who would never say anything nice about uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, or, you know, I won't write for them. That's a popular magazine. They would get the magazine, but they would get it at their home address. They wouldn't get it at their office address, right? <laughs> and then later on, as we were trying to, you know, no, we're we're not going to do sensationalism. We're not going to, we're actually going to do legitimate archaeology and popular scholarship is a good, beneficial thing. We started seeing some of those addresses going back to the to the university addresses. And I always thought that was a good thing. And that's what we're going to be trying to do uh, with this new publication uh, at the University of Iowa online. You know, we we want to make it popular, but something that scholars will contribute to and enjoy as well. Yeah, that's a good segue, Bob. And and I know you you've you and I have talked a little bit about this. Why don't you tell us a bit more about this this new project you've got going on? Because again, you know, I think we are very fortunate in this field that for whatever reason, you know, I think because, you know, Judeo-Christian, you know, interests that people just love the Bible. People love archaeology and want to know, okay, what was there? What is this? And so it, on the one hand, it makes our job extremely easy because, you know, here we are, we get to study this all the time. We get to talk about it and it's just fun. And people like to listen to what we have to say, usually, at least, at least that's the hope. And so, you know, you, I think are moving forward in a really good way to kind of continue to bring people into the fold. So yeah, tell us a bit more about this project you got coming up. Yeah, it's a new online publication called Bible and Archaeology and published here by the University of Iowa. And the idea is to bring all of the original uh, scholarship, both biblical scholarship, it doesn't have to involve archaeology, and archaeological scholarship, and then, of course, the intersection of that, biblical archaeology, uh, to the public. 
So we want to have scholars involved and, you know, writing articles for us, original content, but we also want to be an aggregate, a news aggregate. So anytime something new is discovered, we'll make sure to post it up there. And so if there's one spot that you want to go to, to learn about all the excavations in the Holy Land, how do I participate? Can I get a scholarship? Um, uh, uh, who's directing it? You know, I, I need all that information. Not only is it just a list of sites, there's actually an interactive map. You can see the proximity of one site to another. You can go there and learn that. You can see original articles written by the scholars themselves. You can actually see all the news. There's a there's a aggregate news uh, updater. Um, there's you know there's games. There's trivia. Um, there's all kinds of things. Basically, it's the one stop place for all things having to do with Bible and archaeology, and it's going to be online. Uh, we we realize that more people, especially following COVID, are just wanting online publications. And the one thing that we're adding to this is just pushing video content. Everybody's transitioning to video. That's where students are. That's where these lectures are, you know, the, the Zoom, with Zoom now. So I'm basically taking a lot of these things that I used to write for an article for a print magazine, and I'm basically doing them to camera uh, and, you know, making three, four, 30 minute videos on my excavator um, YouTube channel. And then I'm asking for content from other people and we'll aggregate all of that content. And we're trying to put together a a vetted uh, site with uh, print, uh, original print uh, and video content that people can go to. And then we're asking for partnerships. If somebody else has good content, we want to make sure to push our our subscribers to their content so that you know we can say, this is good stuff. You should take a look at this. You should listen to this podcast and then push them right over there. Yeah, it's great. And you know, I think this is you know, great because number one, it's affiliated with a university. Not to say that that has to be a necessity, but you know, it's, it's the challenge out there today with so much out there, quote unquote, fake news, you know, in and, and, and any number of different fields. And how do you find good information? How do you know that what you're finding out about is actually, you know, good? You know, it, it did, you know, uh, Ezekiel, you know, fly away in a UFO? Well, uh, you know, well, let's find out. Let's talk and see what some, what scholars are, you know, talking about. And, you know, and so, but trying to parcel through all the material that's out there is a challenge, whether again, it's in our field or in anything else. And so having a place that is going to start, you know, kind of growing this, this name or, you know, the, the, this, um, service that you have is going to be a great place where people can come and they know, okay, I'm coming here. I'm going to get good quality. That's going to be accessible and I can trust it. That's what we want to do. We want to be basically the, the first stop say, Hey, something happened. How do I, you know, do I go look at this site? Do I go look over in the news? Do I do a Google? You come to Bible and archeology span and not only can you learn about the latest discovery or find some original content, but we can actually say, We've gone out there and weeded through all of the, the stuff, and this is the good material by, by good, responsible scholars who are actually trying to reach the public with responsible scholarship. That's what we want to be. And we'll point them in the right direction. Good. That's, that's, yeah, this is, this is great. Um, you know, here's a, a pop question for you. You mentioned trivia and kind of you know new finds, although the, the find I'm going to reference isn't necessarily new. It's a little bit, a little bit older at this time, but do you know, Bob, of anyone um, who has ever come close to discovering a cuneiform archive at, say, the site of Hutzor? 
I think they're still looking for it. They found some of it. But I remember uh, there was an archaeologist digging at Hotsor. Gosh, I guess it was 2006. 2000, yeah, I think 2006. I think it was 2006 mm-hmm. who for about 60 seconds thought he put his pick through the archive at Hatsor. Yes. I remember I, I, I didn't see it happen, but I, I heard it. Let me uh, paint a picture digging, for when you. I was digging I there think, at Hatsor. Yeah, let me paint a picture for you. I'll paint a picture for you. And I think our listeners will appreciate this as well. And, you know, not only does it capture the excitement of being on an excavation and kind of what, you know, what you can experience there, but it's all about, you know, um, good scholarship and, and other things that are taking place. So this this unnamed archaeologist came back from, from breakfast one morning, having had delicious dig breakfast of hard-boiled eggs and other Israeli salads, and came back to his square and continued to remove the loose dirt that was there before breakfast. And as he was pulling the material away, all of a sudden, little tablets started showing up. You know, beautiful little tablets, you know, perfect size for cuneiform tablets. And of course, People have been looking at Hatsor for this cuneiform archive for quite a while. We were, this archaeologist was in the right region, and and as he started to pull them up, he saw one, then two, then three. Oh my goodness, his heart was racing. It was fantastic. And so he picked one up, and Lomi had turned it over, and he was amazed that he could actually read the language that was there, like just sight read it. And it said, soap. And turns out that our illustrious guest here, Professor Bob Cargill had been collecting some soap tablets from uh, the hotel that are the exact same size and shape as cuneiform tablets and put them into my my square for me to discover and have a heart attack. So I just wanted to share that because I thought it'd be a good trivia question. And it's a good lesson for you aspiring archaeologists to make sure you always clean your square. Never leave any loose dirt sitting there because you never know when somebody might try to make you think you just made the discovery of the millennium. Of the of your career and the millennium, yeah. And, you know, and we should clarify, we didn't contaminate the site. This That's was correct. Loose was you were cleaning it with soap. It was, yeah. it was, yes. <laughs> There was, there was no poor, poor archaeology. This was actually, you know, we, we were not, yeah, did not. I, I remember I remember kneeling down in the square next to, in the, I was digging in the square next to Kyle and kneeling down and just, I had to stay out of sight. And then it was, then it was, who did this? And then it was like listing through the three or four people that you could see. And then it was like, oh no, I, I know who did this. And I looked over and all of a sudden I see these eyes rise above the bulk and I see the rest of the face and big smile. And I knew who did it then. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember if, old, um, who was that? Amnon? That was Amnon and Sharon Zuckerman, who unfortunately has passed away. But yes, that was, that was a good dig. Yeah. Yeah. But Amnon, he he's funny. I, you know, for, for his, for the reputation as, as, you know, you know, he's one of the legends in Israel uh-huh. and he's a tough guy. He had this remarkable sense of humor yes. when I remember digging. He was a fun, fun guy. I, I really liked him. Now, as we, we build upon this amazing story of great archaeology, um, what are some things in your mind? And, you know, I'll throw it to you, Bob, first. And then, Chris, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well. But what are, what are some things, either specific topics or ideas or finds that you wish the public had a better understanding of or uh, could grasp more solidly you know, from, you know, the archaeological world or even textual studies? Is there anything that jumps to your mind? Oh, God. I mean, the quick hits are I, I, that I wish we could just solve. Uh, 
uh, Noah's Ark, Ark of the Covenant, <clears throat> the Merkavah, right in Ezekiel one. Um, you know, the te- anything having to do with the temple, all things Jerusalem. You know, the the things that people know about, right? The things that people uh, are familiar with. Um, writing is the is the is the big topic now, right? Everybody wants to know a little bit about writing. Uh, as these new inscriptions are discovered, especially as we're filling in the holes, I seem to I seem to have uh, read an article very recently by a, a young scholar and his colleagues who've discovered yet another inscription that's kind of filling in the gaps from the 10th, 11th, 12th century. They're up at uh, how do, what's the name of that site again? Kirbit uh, Roy Roy something Roy. Anyways, they've just found this new inscription that is making a contribution uh, to kind of filling in the gaps of what letters look like, what, you know, what was, what was, can we call it Hebrew? What was, what was this script like? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the fun stuff. Writing seems to be getting all the attention. Of course, inscriptions are always popular. Um, I, I, I always want there to be focus on inscriptions, but I, I also wish there was a better understanding of the difference between archaeological context and hard archaeological evidence for the existence of a person or for for an event, and knowing the difference between archaeological evidence for the context in which an event, you know, Dan Brown does this all the time with his with his novels, right? Mm-hmm. He describes the context of something very very accurately, and then puts a fictional character in the middle of. It. And so it makes that fictional character look more, more real. Like this, this story that he's telling about Rome or about Paris or whatever looks more real. The difference between an archaeological context and hard archaeological evidence for an actual event. And if people could, that, that's a difficult thing to nuance. But once you get that, then I think archaeology comes alive. Yeah, I would just add, um, related to that, is I even think um, the public at large and, and even a lot of scholars... Uh, I'm thinking mostly archaeologists, they have a hard time um, thinking of the bigger picture in terms of especially the geography. I mean, it, it, when we think about, let's say, the region of the Shvela, we're talking about Kirbet Arai and others, like, th- th- there's the thought that if it's not excavated, then it doesn't exist, um, where there's all kinds of survey da- data that's out there that's been published, and then there's, of course, the, this geographical setting, and then there's also the stuff that we don't know. Like, um, I kind of chuckle at some of the um, reconstructions over the years that want to make the the Shvela the center of everything when we've never even excavated in the place where Judah is supposed to have lived in between Hebron and Jerusalem. How can you say it's the center when there's, <laughs> when where the supposed to be center is has never been excavated? And so I, I think that in general, both the public um, who is interested in the Bible and interested in the biblical backgrounds, having a knowledge of the the, the wider geography and the number of sites that are that are there that have yet to be explored, either through you know, just, we haven't got there yet or they're inaccessible because of a modern political situation, um, that needs to be taken into account much more than it typically has, and that of course is you know historical geography, uh, which is a, which is a great field, but it, it really fits in with what Bob is saying is 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 putting in that larger context of okay, we can talk about a specific site, a specific, you know, fact-driven thing, but what's going on in the larger setting of the, the biblical world and time frame that is beyond just a, a given decade or, or even a century um, over the time periods that we're interested in? 
Yeah. I think that's a good good segue, Chris, because you know one thing that I'm struck by uh, some of Bob's scholarship is that, in particular, I think there is this looking at the bigger picture, and you know I, whether it's kind of part and parcel of the public public research or just the specific topic. But you know he's you, Bob. You've done a lot of work with Jerusalem in particular with your your kind of preceding um, book on the cities that built the Bible, um, which you know you, you speak a bit about. Jerusalem, and then even your your most recent one about Melchizedek traditions, um, even though you would separate him perhaps from Jerusalem, but it, you know it's this idea of coming back to Jerusalem, and so I think it's a nice segue to you know looking at specifically Jerusalem itself, and what what is it about this city that you know, kind of uh, uh, fosters this you know long durée perspective pulling things together and what is it so fascinating about this this site for so many people you know when we did the so there was a cnn show that just came out on the history of jerusalem a city of fire and fury and when we first pitched this to cnn when I, when i you know they they had me come in and they say we want to do this show we need cnn to sign off on this and i said See, uh, Jerusalem's fascinating because it shouldn't be a city. It should not be the center of the world, right? The center of the religious universe, right? It It's not on a major waterway. It's not on a major trade route. It doesn't have the natural resources. And yet it's everything, right? And this is, this is the thing. There are traditions. There are things that have been tied to this city. I think because it's in basically a no man's land, right? Because armies, you know, whether it's the Egyptians or the Hittites or the Assyrians or whoever it is coming through to, to conquer this place, they looked up there and they said, I don't want to waste the effort to go up there. So they went and took all these other places that had all the resources that had the water. And Jerusalem survived for a long time because it was just backwater. It was out of the way. And it was able to, you know, survive as this tiny little entity until, it, you know, it got an extra couple hundred years, right, to develop. And then when it survived in the late 8th century, when it survived Sennacherib, right, um, then the legends grew. And so once you have this, you know, over overcoming the mighty Assyrians, then it was this inviolable city of God and that tradition grew. And it was out of that tradition, once you got that snowball rolling, that people kept coming back to Jerusalem. And so then it was this, this city for the Jews that had to be defended, that, that the Messiah is going to come back to, then the Christians and the Muslims. And that's, it's, it's a pure, it's not a city driven by economic resources or driven by all the factors that traditionally make great cities. It's a city driven by legend, driven by tradition. Um, and that's that's one of the key things that makes it different. And once you've got that going, once it's part of all of these different people's cultures and traditions and heritages, then everybody wants a piece of it for symbolic value. And that's why it's so hard to solve this modern political situation. That's that's what the series is trying to get at. You can't solve the modern situation unless you know the history. And once you know the history, you're going to have to give and take a little bit in order to solve this. And if we can ever get to a solution between Israel and the Palestinians, then maybe we can get in and dig some of these sites. Maybe we can get in and have a warm, robust peace between two peoples who love this land, right? Who, who, who want to be part of this, you know, who have, who have legitimate claims 
to this place. And that's what that's what we're after. It's it's a very special city. I know it is to, to you both. I, I you know, you, the first time I was there, I fell in love with it. Then I continued to fall in love with it. And I just want to see peace in that city. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm wondering if you, you know, as the, the series unfolds and and sorry, Chris, I cut you off. I see you're about to say something. Um, but um, the you know, it, it is this, um, you know, the it's almost with Jerusalem, as in many other things, you know, don't bother me with the facts that, you know, particularly in the modern situations, you know, everybody wants a piece of Jerusalem. And you're right, because it is this city of legend that all these, these traditions, it's like a giant magnet that just sucks them in. Something happens somewhere else, doesn't matter, it gets associated with Jerusalem. Something happens over here, it gets associated with Jerusalem. Something happens over and, and how then do you separate out the reality from the legend? And, you know, is this going to be possible? Because, like you said, really, you know, we need to educate people about this and give them good information, which is kind of the theme of everything we've been talking about here. And, you know, this is going to be hopefully the way that we can move forward. But if, if people aren't willing to be educated, if people only want to hold on to the legends and and you know, we've talked in previous podcasts about traditions and some traditions are good some traditions are traditions and you need to be willing and able to parcel those out a bit and you know Jerusalem is a perfect example uh, where you should be doing something like this yeah i don't know if i have any answers to uh solving the uh the, the modern thing but i would just simply add to this is is just to add some specific examples, I mean, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you are standing on the place where you have um, the spirit of, of Yahweh in Ezekiel departing, the same place that Jesus is, is ascended from. Uh, you have, of course, you're looking at Jerusalem, and which the book of Revelation says in the Christian tradition is the place where heaven's coming down. You're right above the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the Valley of Yahweh's judgment. So that's the end judgment, which um, both Muslims and Jews and Christians believe um, is this place of, of judgment, which is why you have cemeteries there. And then right around the corner, you have uh, you have the entrance to hell and uh, the, the Valley of, of Gehenna. I mean, Gehenna, I mean, it's the word for hell in the New Testament. So you have heaven, hell, uh, plus the place where the final battle is. So, I mean, not only is it a tradition that goes back to all of these, uh, whether from the patriarchs um, in Genesis until uh, until our day, but it, it, it projects to the eschaton. Um, so it's 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 <laughs> it's not just something in the past. It's something that is every one of these traditions says it's going to happen in the future, um, and so it, it makes the present very interesting. <laughs> when you add that religious dynamic, and when that religious dynamic is so intertwined with the political dynamic, but again, I think. The answer, in part, is going to be time plus education plus discovery, right? So I was really excited about the temple that was discovered at Telmoza, you know, that, that existed at the same time of Solomon's temple, right, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, just, you know, a couple of miles to the west of Jerusalem. There was a second temple right there that apparently doesn't get mentioned too much in the Bible, right? Or that Jericho is one of the oldest cities, if not the oldest city, on the face of the earth. Um, you know, why can't there be a Palestinian capital? You can still have the Waqf and the Temple Mount and the religious spiritual home. You know, Jordan did that. They made Jerusalem the spiritual second capital. Um, why can't you have Jerusalem be a spiritual capital for a Palestinian state, but make Jericho 
uh, a new capital city. You know, uh, Brazil, I mean, Brazil did this by making Brasilia a brand new capital. Belize did this by make take moving from Belize City to Belmopan. You can build a new capital. I think there would be a lot of money for the building of a new state-of-the-art capital for a new state-of-the-art state if you wanted to do this. But nobody wants to let go of Jerusalem. And let's be honest, most of the administrative stuff for the state of Israel is over in Tel Aviv, right? But it's Jerusalem. They wanted to lay claim to that, that spiritual center. And so if we can do this discovery, hey, there was another temple at Tel Motza that, you know, the Bible very cleverly didn't want to talk about too much. Jericho is the oldest city. Let's, let's see what else is out there. Let's see these other traditions Maybe, maybe this discovery, this archaeological discovery, can actually contribute to the political peace in the future. Now, this is an interesting uh, point, Bob, and I think it's going to lead into your most recent book about Melchizedek traditions, and where you're kind of doing the exact opposite of what historically has been the case with Jerusalem, is where you've got Melchizedek, this kind of righteous king ruler individual, this mysterious guy that is in Salem, which through later tradition, is associated with Jerusalem, right? And and you're saying that actually, you know, this is maybe one of the earlier instances, or is, it's an instance where he has been associated with Jerusalem and that actually there's an earlier tradition. So maybe uh, tell us a bit about this and, and what you see as your chief contributions to understanding this whole Melchizedek contribution. Yeah, in, in, in three quick steps, you know, the Melchizedek book is essentially saying, that Genesis 14, um, that, that Genesis 14 passage where um, uh, where Abraham encounters Melchizedek, uh, 14, you know, the 17 through 24, where he's talking to the king of Sodom, and then 18 through 20, where he where the Melchizedek comes in. A lot of people have said, well, that's a later insertion into the text. I think that that's original to the to the conversation between Abram and uh, the king of Sodom. But what happened? was they didn't mind having Abram talking to the king of Sodom. He does that in Genesis 18, right? He's, he's, he's talking to God, begging for him, him to spare Sodom. He has no problem having positive relations with Sodom. It's that he blessed him. He blessed him uh, by the name of this other deity, El Elyon, which then they harmonized with, with Yahweh. But it's that 17, 18, uh, pardon me, verses 18 through 20, what they did was they changed king of Sodom to king of Shalem, which now makes it look like he's talking to the king of Sodom. And then all of a sudden, out of the ether, right, comes the king of Shalem. And now he has this blessing. And then the king of Shalem just disappears, right, which is how the Christians would interpret it later. And now he's back talking to the king of Sodom, which is not only, you know, doesn't flow with the narrative or flow with the, of, of you know, what's going on in the story. But I tried to show in the book grammatically in a very technical sense that it doesn't fit either. So that, so that if you change Shalem in verse 18 back to Sodom, that whole text makes sense. So they solved one problem, trying to distance Abram from the king of Sodom in that text by changing Sodom to Shalem with a couple letters uh, switched out. But it created another problem. Now, all of a sudden, you've got the king of Shalem, right, blessing Abram. Well, where's Shalem? Shalem's up north next to Samaria. So as you moved on through time and the Samaritans and the, and the Judahites and the Jews are starting to really, really hate each other, you can't have Abram ha having a claim right, with Shalem, and you've got all these traditions where Abram 
is tied to, you know, to Nablus, basically, to, to, to Samaria and to Shechem, but you don't have any mention in the Pentateuch of Jerusalem. And so what was the tradition? How do you tie, you make Shalem into Jerusalem? So the second part of that book is basically saying that the whole Shalem is an early nickname for Jerusalem. That tradition is basically concocted. And I go through the evidence there. When you look at all the early mentions of Jerusalem, it's always this lengthy name, Yerushalimu. So when you go back and look at the name Yerushalimu or Jerusalem, the determinative Uru, right, which they say it was just a determinative plus Shalem, Uru Shalem, there's actually the determinative in front of Uru Shalem. So it was Uru, Uru Shalem. And we don't see that on any of the other names. So what I'm arguing is, Jerusalem was always Jerusalem. It was never just Shalem. So, but it sounded right, and they were in the they were into the to the game of making up these these etymologies. We see that all through the Bible. Oh yeah, it was named this because of this, and the verb really doesn't match, but they don't care, right? <laughs> they made Shalem into Jerusalem so they could wrestle that Shalem tradition away from Samaria and give it to Jerusalem. So that's that's what I'm doing with the book. The first half of this book here is I'm saying that what he's doing is he's talking to the king of Sodom and they changed it to Shalem to fix that problem, but they created another problem. So how did they solve that? They made Shalem into Jerusalem and that tradition stuck. Now, my purpose for doing that wasn't to say, Abraham, you know, Shalem really isn't Jerusalem, so you don't need to be. Jerusalem has all the tradition. The, the state of Israel is not going to give up Jerusalem. That's not the point here. But my point is to show the redaction of Genesis 14, just to show what happened there. But that's not to say that there are other places in Israel that are important, right? It's not all just about Jerusalem. There's a lot of other country that needs to be explored. So, so one question, uh, Bob, about uh, about this um, this thesis, specifically about the Valley of Shaveh and the the King's Valley. Would you see that as um, part of the original story, or, um, or or something that was added later? And before you answer, just to give some background, because it does seem like there are some um, texts that seem to point that is in Jerusalem, such as in Second Samuel, I forget which chapter it is, with Absalom where he raises his yod, his, his monument, uh, which I was reading re- re- uh, recently, also appears on the Copper Scroll, you know, that we have Absalom's monument, and I have my own ideas about that. But uh, my main question is, is do, you, do you see that as part of a, a later adaption or something that's original? Yeah, I talk about the, the Valley of Shaveh and all of the references, the Valley of Sedim, right, which is, I think is clearly a, a reference to the, the Dead Sea region, um, I would put, you know, I don't, I don't know if we found Sodom. I would put it on the northern end, uh, east of the Jordan River. Uh, I would put it on the, I wouldn't put it on the southern end or one of the. I think it was a real city. I don't know, you know, if it was destroyed by, you know, fire and brimstone sent from above, but it, it would certainly be on the northern end of the Dead Sea, over uh, in modern Jordan there. Um, but I, I took some time in the book to talk about, uh, especially this reference that we find in the Copper Scroll. There's an odd reference to, I believe it was Shave in the Copper Scroll. And these references all appear to line up in along the, the Jordan River, along the Dead Sea. And so 
the the references before, if I remember correctly, I have to go back and read my own book. But before and <laughs> after uh, appear to be there in the the Dead Sea. Now the question is, are they are they talking about a line, a string of sites along along the the Jordan River on the Dead Sea there? Or are they talking about the Kidron, basically, or some yeah. valley that runs up into Jerusalem? And this is a reference to Jerusalem. And you, you can see how that argues yeah. either way. So it supports. So I kind of left that one as and I mentioned, you know, it supports either way. And I kind of left it. But I still hold to the to the idea that she, based upon the, the ancient evidence, all of the earliest references to Jerusalem don't call it Shalem. They have a full, lengthy Uru Shalim, Uru Shalim. All it's, it, you know, this idea that it was, it used to be called Shalem. It's nowhere attested in the early evidence. And then by the time you get to the Copper Scroll, you're dealing with inter, you know, late traditions. Uh, anyway, so the early hard evidence that we have, you know, Shalem is up there by Shechem. And and we have that in the Bible, too. I talk about the biblical evidence and what they did to change the biblical narrative to pull Shalem away, to interpret, to make sure that the only references to Shalem are about Jerusalem, because you do have other references to Shalem with in relation to Shechem. Uh, and I think one of those is Genesis 38. If I remember, again, I have to go back and read my book. But uh, you have this reference that Jacob arrives in Shechem. Yep, yep. But Shalem, you know, basically um, uh, in Shalem, right, they're a city of Shechem and they they want to the the scribal tradition wants to make it in peace. And that's just not how we say in peace. But they don't want Shalem next to Shechem because they've already entered into the tradition of interpreting Shalem as Jerusalem. Interesting. Interesting. I Yeah, that's that's great. So the book, in case, just to give people, the listeners out there, the specifics, it's Melchizedek, King of Sodom, How Scribes Invented the Biblical Priest King. It was published by Oxford uh, University Press 2019. So if you want to go out and buy it, Bob will get a nice um, a nice check from Oxford. So, <laughs> well, as we're wrapping up here, Bob, I just want to ask one one last question. And... You know, in your mind, you know, you've been in Israel, you've you've written about Jerusalem, you've done so much. Do you have any specific memories in the Holy Land that you just would love to share with people and just kind of get them in, in some way, you know, kind of whet their appetite for you know, a desire to visit over there or to delve into the Bible or to know the archaeology better? Is there any parting words that you want to share with us or should I just should I just stop the recording? No, I would I would say uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to to talk to me about this. I love talking about Israel. I love talking about Jerusalem. I would uh, tell people no matter what, don't ever try to pass a bus on the left in the oncoming traffic because you never know what's coming over the hill. Um, Kyle reminds me of that. Um, that was about the scariest moment moment of my life. Yeah, and Kyle, Kyle, very calmly, as, as you know, the, the car that was coming over the hill the other way as I was passing the bus, uh, Kyle just said, please don't ever do that again. And that was the end of it. And I said, yeah, okay, I'm, I, I was terrified, and but we made it through. No, I mean, the, the first time I touched the Western Wall, you know, I'm... I, I'm a historian, right? But as a piece of history, uh, that was that was special. Uh, the first time I ever discovered 
there's a there's a marble head of about an eight year old girl that I discovered when I my very first dig at Bonius, digging with Vasilius Seferis of blessed memory, um, back when I dug with him up at Bonius. That's in the Israel Museum. I remember remember finding that, and right there it says, you know, the young girl discovered by Vasilius Seferis, right? Because the director always gets credit for it. But I remember finding that and saying, oh, I'm I'm never going to stop doing this. It gets in your, in the same way that I was a catcher and that, uh, you know, the, the smell of that dirt is always in my nose. And if I smell dirt like that, I just, I'm transported. That's how I feel about those, those early discoveries. My, you know, it's like a first kiss, right? You'll, you're just transported, and I just want to to go back to walk through the old city and to smell the fresh bread and the zatar and and to to th- that stuff you long for and you want to be a part of it, and it just drives you to be a poor humanities professor, you know, for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, Word. Yes, exactly. <laughs> great. Well, Bob, thank you so much. We're at the end of our time here. It's been, it's been great chatting with you and reliving some, some pretty, pretty fun memories. And uh, just thank you for, you know, contributing in the way that you are right now with scholarship and just, I think, driving um, us to, make what we're doing applicable and approachable for so many people. And again, this is, as Chris mentioned, this is what this whole podcast is about. So it's been a real pleasure to have you on here today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And it's, it's great to talk to you both. All right. So on, uh, on script, biblical world listeners, we will be back next time with another fantastic guest. So thanks for listening. You've been listening to on scripts, biblical world podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.